1: You'll never see the spoilers coming. If you don't pay attention to this disclaimer, this podcast contains multiple, many, many, many spoilers about the film Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings... Uh, the series What If, and honestly, who knows what else. So if you haven't seen Shang-Chi or What If, or you're not sure whether the apes in Planet of the Apes are actors or apes playing actors or apes playing actors playing smart apes, maybe wait until you figure all that out before you listen to this. Hello! Welcome to episode two of X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we delve into the nooks and crannies of your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. Today, lucky you, lucky us, we're following up on our MCU debut with an episode all about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Uh, But first, let me introduce our second rotating co-host. She's an Eisner-winning writer, culture critic, whose work has appeared in... Nerdist, Esquire, IGN, The Hollywood Reporter, and many other places. Please welcome to the show, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to be here.
1: Uh, let's get into the news. It's time for Previously On, where we unpack and analyze some of the latest news stories in pop culture. We're going to start by turning back the clock just a bit to discuss, first of all, the uh, the announcement of uh, Cowboy Bebop, the live action version of the famous anime and also the continuing news dribble about the live action Avatar, the last airbender (laughs) as Netflix continues to kind of put anime and anime style animation on lock as they create their brand. I know that listen, Avatar, the last airbender fans are going to, it better be good. That's all. It just has to be good. (laughs)
2: That is one of the most, I love, I love Avatar and Korra. I mean, yeah. and it is truly one of the most dedicated fandoms. They care. They We've been hurt before. <laughs>
1: it, and it was a heartbreak that people have not gotten over. Like, it better mm-hmm. be good. This is a second chance that people did not really think they had after the M. Night debacle. So, man, I hope this is good. And it's interesting to see um, Netflix, like, carve out this space. This is... You know, every streamer is trying to get into either animation or the comic book realm. I think Amazon has done some really interesting and good work in kind of carving out the, like, deconstructionist superhero space. You know, what if the Justice League were bad with Invincible Mm -hmm. and with the boys? And, um, you know, Netflix's uh, acquisition of Millar World has kind of, Jupiter's (laughs) legacy kind of bricked. Um I think the lesson there for everyone is like spend money on wigs and costumes so people like will tune in and watch it. Uh but it, the the continuing uh kind of like uh widening of it, of their live action anime offerings is going to be really fascinating to watch. Are you excited for this?
2: Yeah, I'm really excited especially because I feel like they noticed a gap in the American streaming market because they yeah. started to fill up their with not only like picking up anime that they and you know K dramas and all different kinds of stuff that wasn't available, but also then like making originals. And especially in the space of like, you know, Godzilla Singular Point. Like that's so different from the other Godzilla anime that they made, which was like a this canon hardcore CGI anime. And then they made this really fun, more classic, really cute character designs all about kids. So they're not they're making this eclectic range of anime which I think is because they know how much people want live action animated adaptations so if they start building out their own roster of shows they can then kind of build on them and adapt them themselves rather than adapting other things but I mean I can't wait for the Avatar one, I think the kid that they cast as Aang is really cute. I think his name's like Gordon Cromier as well. So every time I see that, it's just this little serious <laughs> face with these really big eyebrows. I'm like, yes, Gordon Cromier, I, I believe in you. Um, and yeah, and obviously the Cowboy Bebop pictures look unreal. They I look they unreal. They got it so right. They
1: look fucking unreal. Yeah, they, it just is like better than I imagined it. I, again, it's just, it's just stills. But... Th- <laughs> it looks so good and it just captures the vibe that you want it to capture um next up uh unconfirmed rumors that a werewolf by night halloween special obviously for probably definitely not for this halloween but for next halloween will appear on disney plus according to the rap Uh, In an exclusive, quote, Marvel Studios is actively searching for a Latino actor to lead the cast of an as-of-yet untitled Halloween special that will air on Disney+. And uh, continues, individuals with knowledge say the character may be based on Werewolf by Night. Um, I always thought if we were going to see Werewolf by Night, who hilariously originally was named Jack Russell in the <laughs> It's still is still one of the funniest things ever to me uh that they would appear uh in the moon knight series yeah uh those two kind of ran in the same circles in the comics um so this is this is pretty interesting and you know like we we've got espionage marvel spy marvel we've got uh we've got uh cosmic marvel we've got uh, mystical slash magic marvel we haven't really seen horror marvel yet that's you know ghost rider mm-hmm. uh, jericho drum uh the marvel zombies etc i think that that is it would make sense that that is the next place that we go from the marvel can obviously blade in the works
2: yeah i definitely think that's the case because werewolf by night and you know uh, tomb of dracula where blade came from that 70s era of Marvel horror comics is so weird and eclectic. Mm-hmm. And throughout the years, they've been bought in. Like, if, you know, like you said, Moon Knight, Werewolf by Night, that's so, so obviously connected. But Werewolf by Night's also like got connections to Rain from New Mutants and, and X-Men. And there's all different fun stuff, especially with, you know, Blade. Obviously, there's connections with how the X-Men and Mutants and yes. Vampires are all connected. So I really think horror Marvel is a super exciting place. And again, kind of like what we're talking about Netflix, there's a there's a range you can do. You can do a Werewolf by Night show that is PG, Halloween special, but you can have Moon Knight that is closer to an R-rated with violence. I mean, you've got to have the depth of exploration with yeah. the mental health stuff. So I'm I'm really excited to to see Horror Marvel, especially I think Blade is like so rad and those Tomb of Dracula Blade stuff where he's in London and he's raised by yes. this um, jazz trumpeter I think his name's Jamal Afari like that's and he lives with sex workers who raise him it's actually like really really cool weird pulpy stuff so I would love to see that and it makes sense with Moon Knight coming that Werewolf by Night I'm assuming they could introduce there and then you know have a kind of Halloween maybe like a Marvel Horace Halloween special maybe it would be focused on Werewolf by Night but you could have some of those other elements yeah, it,
1: it's interesting because you know Horror Marvel has come in and out of style. And I guess you could argue probably the most long-lasting horror Marvel character is either Blade or, I guess, Ghost Rider. Mm-hmm. Uh, most consistently, like, horror-centric in the way they are deployed and the fact that they have staying power and have a, a pretty uh vociferous fan base of all their own. Um But, like, you know, various horror team-ups over the years have have been super fun, but kind of, like, not really stuck around. Mm -hmm. But I really think that uh, in the video space, like, an adaption, I think it would really, really hit. Obviously, horror is, you know, in movies there currently. There's, like, comic book movies, which are the main driver of entertainment right now. But horror is a genre where you studios know uh they plug in a certain amount of money for a budget it will return x amount back like it's it's a it's a genre that is has always been popular always has fans and always makes money and i think a combination of those two things like marvel and horror would be super awesome it would just be it would just yeah. be really cool and and a continuing trend of like stuff i never thought i like if i see freaking man thing like on a <laughs> Oh, my I dream screen. Yeah, I'll just be like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Like, this is crazy that this is happening.
2: Yeah, and I actually think Man Thing is like a pretty solid bet if they do go horror yeah. because he's so connected to the Nexus of all realities and all this kind of yes. multiverse space. So as soon as that came into Wonder I was like, oh my god, it's happening! Like this, this could happen. And Wonder definitely had a little bit. They teased that yes. horror Ben. You know, the reveal For of sure. Dead Vision. That was scary. That was, that like was actually scary. You know, I that's I'm glad you mentioned
1: that because it was one uh you know, like Marvel, you know, Disney, a Disney company, they don't often get into the space where you're scared or there's gore or there's this kind of like shocking confrontation with the with the reality of death or dismemberment. But seeing Vision in that state when Wanda charges into sword it was legitimately shocking. And the way mm-hmm. they, you know, like the, the white coloration, the way his eyes looked it, it, when he was laying there on the table, it was like, whoa. Um, so, yeah, there is that energy. And, of course, like Marvel Zombies,
2: mm-hmm. which I,
1: I will almost guarantee you, actually, like, isn't it basically confirmed that we will see it in What If? Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. A, there's an image of um, of Captain America as a zombie. And, obviously, Bucky is trying to fight yeah. him or save him some kind of stuff to upset it, the bucky cap stands you know um yeah so that, i think it's definitely happening also probably could be tied into what we saw this week which i know we'll talk about soon but yeah, like so i think it, yeah it's gonna happen
1: so it, obviously one of the biggest hits uh in the marvel horror space in probably ever robert kirkman's uh, marvel zombies mm-hmm. uh in which a dimension of fully populated by zombies breaks into the 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 main Marvel dimension. Man, that was a super fun read, uh, and would be super fun to watch. Another thing that is just crazy. So, yeah, let's talk about what if. Um, <laughs> the, it's been, I've enjoyed it. I think you know the complaint that I see is that that thirty minutes ish. I think this latest episode was like 34 minutes, uh, is not enough. Uh, I think it's like kind of perfect. Leave them wanting more. Yeah. Uh, I've enjoyed every single episode. The last three, uh, the, the last two episodes, what if the world lost its uh, mightiest heroes? And then the most recent episode, what if Stephen Strange lost his heart instead of his hands? Uh, and we uh, knew exactly what would happen there. we uh, were super fun. <laughs> i have so let's start with episode 3 with hank pym uh spoiler hank pym murdering uh the earth's mightiest heroes before they can join up do we think hank pym could have pulled this off so
2: i actually so that episode for me like i i thought episode 2 was like so amazing that i think a little bit of episode 3 i was kind of i was like i was seeking out that like emotional kind of hit of the of the second episode but do i think hank could, hank could have pulled it off so it is one of the things I find really cool, and I think it is the closest thing we've gotten to actually pulling from the comics rather than the MCU. In Yellowjacket's first appearance, which is Avengers 59, it's revealed at the end that the person who has been attacking the Avengers is Hank Pym. Yes. So this is like a really cool, darker reflection of that. So like Hank Pym has fucked with the Avengers before. Like it is canon, Oh, yeah, 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 Benny, but Benny, like, yeah and, like, but, and, and comic book Hank is like, was like a piece of shit at that time as well. So I'm a like, true, if it's that of Hank, shit.
1: I'm
2: like, maybe he could pull it off. But like the level of science that you would need. And also it doesn't, you know, we, we've we seen how S.H.I.E.L.D. in that first phase, second phase was acting. Like that was a serious business. I don't know if Hank Pym could have really gotten in and gotten every single Avenger like that. I just, I don't know if, if it was realistic in the way that we know S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of behaved. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I I uh, I'm glad you mentioned Tank's comics canon. It is you know there it is extremely turbulent. Obviously, uh, the reverberations of his attack of Janet mm-hmm. uh, continue to echo through the canon. Uh, his his actions in the ulti- ultimate universe are truly despicable. <laughs> uh, there are some questions about whether. Um, you know the slap of Janet was was meant to happen. Regardless, it happened. He also did attack the Avengers multiple times because of his own insecurity slash mm-hmm. probably you know slash mental illness. But it was cool to see. You know he's mainly been just a very very arrogant egoist in the MCU. So it was cool to see some of that come in. I will say, I don't think you can get. Hulk like that. I just mm-hmm. don't think. I don't think it's. I don't. Maybe I'm too colored by uh you know Al Ewing's Immortal uh, Hulk mm. and the Ultimate Universe Hulk. But like, I just feel like that wouldn't work.
2: Yeah, I also think that Hulk's entire power is based and like power set and kind of life is based off mutation. So I think mm-hmm. that if you introduce something like that, it would be much more likely that he would mutate to fit to it rather than exploding you know but that was like that was the gross death that got everyone like freaking out online so like I get why they put it in but also that again kind of fits into Hank Pym is like is he smart enough to come up with that thing that could kill the Hulk that's and that's also the bigger question because Hulk's basically is unkillable you know
1: essentially unkillable and certainly like listen I think if you get him in banner form okay Mm -hmm. maybe but I don't, it, once he's hulked out, I think that's, you know, Hulk's whole thing is that he continues to, he is just like this endless conduit of gamma energy who can hulk past whatever injuries to him happen, and I just think he would hulk past it. That's just me, mm-hmm. that's fine, but I, en- I enjoyed it in the last. What about episode four, what if Stephen Strange lost his heart instead of his hands in a reckless and foolhardy attempt to bring Christine Palmer back from the dead? Uh, here it must be said once again it is it's probably not great that she's more fleshed out here than she was in <laughs> doctor strange the movie again a movie a movie in which the cape was legitimately a bigger character yeah. <laughs> than the than the love interest um but doctor strange uses the eye of agamotto as well as the various other spells and Uh, goes to the library of Caglioso and snorts various demons for days upon days upon days in order to become powerful enough to bring her back. Uh, And guess what? It goes wrong. Uh, I will say this was a very, this was a very Dr. Stephen Strange thing to do. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stephen Strange is constantly like, you know what? I need more power to do whatever it is. To do often something that is good, necessary, right? I need more power to be able to accomplish this. And to do that, why don't I tap into some demon realm? That's a good idea, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then of course that always uh, goes bad. Uh, I enjoyed this episode. Um, the The use of it's interesting to consider whenever uh, whenever the death of a of a loved one is used as like the mm-hmm. propelling force forward to wonder whether this was fridging, uh, fridging a, a comic centric term uh that uh, why don't you tell us what fridging is
2: okay so it originated i think it's kyle Rayner, green lantern whose girlfriend yes. was put in a fridge um a diet murdered and, and put in a fridge and gail um simone i think co- coined the term and women in refrigerators but it really has transcended that to being anyone specifically a marginalized loved one or something yes. to propel forward usually a main character it is it's very interesting i think it's hard to talk about in the context of this because like you said we didn't I, really know christine so it's kind yeah. of like the question is i think is like the it, or it it almost becomes like a parody because of how many times she dies in this episode they're like oh it's not fridging let me just i watched it with my nephew and he was like i thought the episode was quite good and he was like but did she need to die that many times? And I was like, I don't, I think the, it's, it's that time machine thing. It's very similar yeah. to the HG Ross time machine thing. No matter what you do, she's always going to die. And you need that yeah. to push you to that place. I actually think this was very sensibly timed because I, like- I, so I
1: agree. This felt because, very strategic to right, me. Right.
2: Because like, I have to say, I am a, theory die hard I love a theory I I read all the comics so when I watch a trailer or something or WandaVision whatever I'll be the one there saying like it's this character I guess the one thing I got right recently was I knew Kang was gonna be (laughs) in Loki like that was my one theory I got right so when I saw the trailer the thing that got me the Spider-Man uh No Way Home trailer the thing that got me about Stephen Strange was I thought he was being too nice I didn't the arrogance all of that I believe it he does dumb stuff all the time but I was like he's being too nice but I feel like this coming out now just after that trailer, I think they're trying to tell people this is who Stephen Strange is. That is not someone else. This is a man who in a different world, if he doesn't get what he wants, he will go to the end. He will destroy a universe in his pursuit for power, in his pursuit to do what he deems the right thing. And I feel like this is to say, and also introducing the idea of like the dark strange, dark Doctor Strange, which is kind of something that comes up in the comics. So I, I think it was... I think it's very clever in that sense. And as someone who was definitely like, uh, I never seen Doctor Strange wink. That's probably like magic or or like <laughs> someone outrageous, like something outrageous because she's in the new death of Doctor Strange comics and stuff. You know, I was having fun with it. But after watching this and, and the timing, the way they released it, I feel like this is really going back to that core idea of like his arrogance being the same. thing that drives him.
1: Yeah, I felt the same way. I also think that like, you know in terms of fridging fridging to me is a uh there is a level of of wanton violence mm-hmm. that is not present here this is just christine died and you know she died in a car accident uh she was not tortured to death and then like posed and and mm-hmm. done in a way that was meant to uh motivate a hero by shocking them. Um yeah. but it's always and... I think important to 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 wonder if that's happening. And I will say like I agree with you. This felt very strategic both to um kind of introduce as we talked about before the kind of more dark horror elements that are present in Marvel and haven't really been represented yet um on the screen and kind of like get people ready for that and also to let people know like yeah, Doctor Strange is a Doctor Strange is a reckless cat. I know that there's a lot mm-hmm. of uh there's a lot of, oh, he's a variant. Could he be a variant? Or could he be controlled maybe by Mephisto? Uh listen, I think we <laughs> Mephisto, I, The Mephisto stuff, I it's just I would not be shocked if funny. he's there. It is funny. I would not be shocked if Mephisto in some form or fashion, a hint of him is in Multiverse of Madness, if we see a fire dimension, if something like that happens. Uh but I don't think Uh, that's Doctor Strange. Doctor Mm -hmm. Strange, again, is constantly looking for that power-up. He has been, uh, time and time again, told Stephen, don't do this by people who care about him, by people who he actually respects, and he never not once listens to them, ever. Mm -hmm. And his comics canon is full of this stuff. Like, some of the best uh, recent uh, Doctor Strange comic stuff is him dealing with the fallout of becoming depowered because he just pushed the envelope too many freaking times, and now all of a sudden he's just not as strong as he once was. Um, I, I think that it, I, I think you're exactly right. This was this, and a lot of the what if stuff exists to kind of mm-hmm. prime us for ideas, and I think it also exists as batting practice you know they've uh, marvel has said hey if something pops here you may see it as live action you may see it in another form yeah. and i think that that's the case you know like this is this is a fun it's almost like live research and development where they can just mm-hmm. be like hey let's try this crazy thing or let's you know uh we pet avengers maybe like <gasps> what if we did pet I avengers you know like, i mean they I put...
2: w- they put like they put Frog Thor in, in Loki, you know, just a tiny uh, moment, listen, but like
1: Frog Thor, we've already got a roster. Uh, we've got a uh, Throg, uh, alligator Loki, right? Yeah. Um, Morris. It, from oh my God, Morris, 10 we'll 10 talk about 10. <laughs> ten out of ten. I mean, there's there's a there's a burgeoning roster there. I, obviously you put uh Howard the Duck. I think he's yeah. probably too smart to be in it, but you put him in it anyway. He'd be because the leader, be, I guess. He'd be the leader. He, him and Rocket, right? They'd fight <laughs> over who's the leader and both be uh both be dismayed that they were included in this group. Uh it would be fun. I hope you yeah, see also- that.
2: Now that I think like now that What If was basically a test run for Marvel Studios having their own animation studios, because Marvel has always been on the back burner when it comes to that stuff, especially compared to DC and Warner Brothers. So now that they've proven they can do it, that's a lot more space to actually be making an in-house pet Avengers show that you can aim at a younger audience. Or you could do like a funny more adult pet Avengers show with Rocket and Howard
1: and like squirrel girl pet avengers yes. make it happen
2: oh, dude that would be so good i mean like we said we're seeing stuff here that people like us just never thought we would see i mean yeah i still can't get over that shuma gorath is in what if i i knew maybe shuma gorath <laughs> was gonna be in doctor yeah. strange and the multiverse in the multiverse of madness but like actually seeing shuma and they did it like the marvel superheroes entrance where he comes in through yeah. the through the big ball i was like this is so cool so like I do think you're right. I think they're like they're testing and being like, "Well, what if like we introduce this? How much can people take? Like is it too weird?" But I think like things yes. like Alligator Loki, for example, from Loki, that proves that people like the weird stuff. Like that is the character like everybody loves. They're making fan art of it. They're making body pillows in the shape of Alligator yeah. Loki. Like it speaks to people. The espionage ultimate influence MCU has been going on for, you know, over a decade. And I think the weird stuff is really coming to the fore.
1: Yeah, I can't. I, I can't wait for more weird stuff. And then you mentioned it. Our final story: the death of Doctor Strange. Uh, Marvel is preparing to kill off some of its mm-hmm. uh, biggest characters. Yep, it's um, including Spider Man, Scarlet yeah. Witch, uh, Doctor Strange. Uh, I listen. This means one of two things. I guess one thing. <laughs> the thing that always happens is this means it's a it's a fight into hell to get them out, right? Or mm-hmm. some version of that. But I'm excited to see where this goes. This feels again very strategic, very timed for some of yeah. the properties that are coming out now.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I love seeing what they seed in the comics, whether it's the introduction of a character or a concept, multiverse stuff, stuff like that. Are doing a can comic right now to get people to understand who he is a little bit more with the big yeah. timeless thing. And so for me, the fact that they did Wanda's dead she was maybe killed by Magneto but we're kind of finding that out in Trial of Magneto and they're doing a comic just called Death of Doctor Strange which has magic in and they kind of team up and I think the idea is she might be the one who's going to take the mantle in the future and obviously Anya Taylor-Joy mm-hmm. as magic apart from the way that they randomly made her like a xenophobe I don't know what that was about <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I but that otherwise like that right. was terrible that was terrible but otherwise like <laughs> that was perfect casting I know that's someone people would want to see and then yeah, Pat Gleason, they're doing this Beyond Spider Man, Spider Man Beyond event. And Pat Gleason, who's writing and, and, and drawing it, he posted an image that looked like Dead Pia. So it seems like these three major characters who are heavily involved in this multiversal stuff that's occurring, like you said, some kind of battling into hell, like multiverse, something about we're going to have to get them back. They're going to be in trouble. And some yes. magical, you know, we know America Chavez is going to come, multiversal kind of mm-hmm. badass. So there's a lot of ways it could go. If they go to hell though, you know, Mephisto is going to be there.
1: (laughs) He's absolutely going to be there. He's a 100%. They are going to have to do battle with him to get him out. Peter's death is also very, um, it is very provocative for, Mm -hmm. uh, for the, uh, the film properties because you know, Sinister Six heavily teased in uh, the Spider-Man, no way home trailer. And of course in the ultimate universe, uh, Peter perishes, uh, vanquishing the Sinister Six, and that paves the way for the introduction of Miles Morales. Uh, how would we get Miles? Maybe we'd we get him from another dimension. All of this stuff on the table is super, super exciting. I yeah. can't wait to see. And calls. I
2: do think I, they, I can't. I'm not going to quote it because it was always all rumored, but the rumor had it that the there was some kind of deal with Sony about three live-action Spider-Man, Peter Parker movies before a Miles movie at some point. So yeah. I feel like whatever's happening, Sony is already primed into the Spider-Verse is the best Spider-Man movie. Everybody knows that. Marvel is now doing a similar vibe with the multiverse. Yes. I feel like Miles cannot be too far away. And I think Cindy was even in... They had a, a character like Cindy Moon, who was in the credits yes. of of this. She's in the school. So I think that school could become a little spider haven. And yeah, I mean, Tom Holland has the range to die as Peter Parker. Him, I watched Endgame the other day again, and I was like, wow, this is like this. I mean, Infinity War, this is like the performance. Like when he's like, I don't want to go. I was like, yeah, man, like I buy it.
1: That that will break people's hearts, man. Yeah. I'm excited. All (laughs) right. Up next, let's talk about uh, Shang-Chi.
0: Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: And we're back with Rosie to discuss the world of Shang-Chi. It's time to uh, step into the airlock. First, let's recap the movie. Again, spoilers, folks. If you haven't seen it, please go see it, number one. Two, if you haven't seen it, tune out now. Okay, here we go. Sean, a very suspiciously super, super in-shape valet in San Francisco, has a secret. He is actually Shang-Chi, Simu Liu the son of the centuries-old gangster the Mandarin, played by the great Tony Leung. Uh, And this is the real one this time, folks. His mother is the late Jiang Li, played by Fala Chen, a citizen from the secret magical realm Ta Lo. One day, Shang receives a mysterious postcard, and soon after, he is attacked by his father's various henchmen, including the classic Shang-Chi villain Razor Fist, played by Florian Montianu, while riding a city bus with his best friend Katie played by Aquafina, he is swiftly drawn into an adventure that reunites him with his long-lost illegal superhero fight club running sister Jialing, played by Meng Zhang, along with our good pal Trevor Slattery played by Ben Kingsley in his first appearance since the MCU one-shot which is uh, now clearly a prequel to this movie, Return of the King. You can see that on Disney+. And a magical creature named uh, Morris, who we hope to see in Pet Avengers very soon. <laughs> shang travels to Ta Lo to stop his father from destroying the hidden village and freeing an ancient evil. In the end, Shang and friends prevail. Jai Ling, under false pretenses, uh, works to take control of the Ten Rings, her father's criminal syndicate. Shang in possession of their father's magical power rings, the Ten actual weapon rings, returns home where in the credit stinger, Wong appears and welcomes Shang and kind of Katie as well, which is interesting, to the world of superheroes. Katie, is Katie really, I mean, she's got the bow and arrow, but like, I don't think she's up for it. Anyway, welcome to the welcome to the world of superheroes, all of you. Uh, Rosie, what were your uh, overall impressions and reactions to this
2: film? I mean, the, first of all, they were always branding. They had her figure. Her action figure was Marvel's Katie. So I feel like they were yeah, trying that, to... They were like, when that happened, I was like, I guess that's why they made it. But um, <laughs> I mean, this movie has, without doubt, my favorite opening of any MCU movie. This opening, I was like, I went into this movie and I was like, You know, I really want to love it. I really, I love this idea of these bigger Hollywood martial arts movies. Like, I really, you know, Mortal Kombat, like Snake Eyes. It looked like it was going to be a year for that. This movie, I feel like, really delivers on that. But the opening, the Wuja like romance opening, yes, um, between that was
1: legitimately beautiful. Just like actually, just beautifully shot. Um, Tony Leung is one of our great actors. Purely like everything he does is just pure charisma. Can't stop watching him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is maybe the most romantic like MCU stuff yeah. ever. Is that. I think
2: it's, I think it's the first, for me, it's like the first proper MCU romance. Like it is a film about Shang-Chi and, 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 and this kind of connection to Talo and coming to terms with these two sides of his family and stuff. But that romance is just so much at the heart of it. And Tony Leung is like, I am like a big fangirl, right? I love every movie he's been in. I love One Kar-wai. So every time I saw him on the screen, I was like, wow, that's Tony Leung in a Marvel movie. So I was I definitely- mean, that is cra- that
1: is the crazy thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I saw freaking Chung King Express like on, on VHS. Mm-hmm. You know what Same. I mean? Like, so- um, and then uh, they would like randomly play it like on Showtime at like two <laughs> in the morning, uh, in the like late '90s, early 2000s, and you know, and of course, Infernal Affairs is, is mm-hmm. a fucking stone cold, absolute classic. Uh, later adapted by Martin Scorsese as a part. Um, I, I, it is crazy to see him in a Marvel movie. It's yeah. uh, it's it's absolutely. nuts to see him and Michelle Yeoh who is like one of my all-time heroes in a a freaking Marvel movie.
2: And then I think that they are like to me that is like the thing that really makes it stand out is there's this different pedigree of actors and a level of respect like you have this movie that is so obviously influenced by like hip man and then you have Tony Leung, who played Ip Man in the Grandmaster, like the Wong Kar movie. <laughs> yeah. There's just so many levels to it. Michelle Yeoh, obviously, like, iconic in, in that martial arts space as well. Like, So when you bring that and that opening sequence where they do the dance fight and all the shots are just yeah. exactly where you see it, I was just blown away. I was not expecting it. I wasn't expecting it at all. And I just thought, it, and obviously, like, the action in general, I think, is completely badass. I remember saying, like, that bus fight is so good that like nobody's going to talk the about fight the elevator so- fight. Like yeah. everyone always talks about the elevator fight in the MCU and I'm like that just makes you forget it. Like it's so
1: good. The bus fight was incredibly good. I I'll say that I think that people's feelings about this movie will hinge on how they feel about the third act like tone mm-hmm. shift to uh, now we're fighting this uh, big ancient monster. That yeah. said, yeah, the action is fantastic. Like obviously, shades of uh, shades of a police story, mm-hmm. shades of Jackie Chan, shades of uh, Crouching Tiger. Just like beautifully shot and well done. Also, I will say like legitimately hilarious um the reintroduction of trevor slattery is so funny they did he, s- d- such a good job so it, like he actually in what i thought was uh not just one of the funniest lines but also like i thought one of the most necessary and important lines where he talks about his playing the role of you know the the fake Mandarin leader of the mm-hmm. uh, te, of the fake terrorist group, the Ten Rings, as seen in Iron Man Three, um, and he's uh, I, I'm going to misquote him because I've only seen the movie once, but he says it, when he's recounting this to uh, to Shang Chi. He's like, uh, so, yeah, I, I was hired by this uh, r- evil villain to uh, play this terrorist called the Mandarin, which I now understand to be a rather insensitive portrayal. Of, like, and I was just <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is like they the, the, just the fact that they hit on the idea of appropriation through the character of Trevor Slattery was hilarious to me. So funny.
2: Yeah, the I was not expecting a cameo from him let alone like a essentially what is a major role in like the second, the third act yeah. you know with as Morris's funny interpreter. So yeah, I, I thought that I um I liked that they kind of had they face that, like, face on and had him be the one who actually took accountability and, reckoned, like, and like, had the moment of, like, yeah, this sucked and, and here I am now in prison because of it, because of my terrible portrayal. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting.
1: Uh, do you have a favorite scene?
2: The, the opening is definitely is my favorite scene, but I also, anything with Xiaoling, like, I thought that she's just such a badass character. I loved that second stinger. I I really, that just had me being, like, Yes, I want to know you. I want to know how you're going to run the ten rings. I love that Razor Fist was like her funny himbo sidekick oh, because she saved him <laughs> when he was just and she was in like the cool like red. She was in that cool red jumpsuit, and he was just there at her side, like with his little razor arm. I was just like, I thought that was really cool. The bus scene obviously was amazing. Um, I really anything with Tony the Young, I thought was really good. I loved seeing the stuff um the kind of backstory of shang and when they were the parents were together that stuff really really hit for me
1: yeah razor fist being a total like scumbag himbo with the the, you know detailed uh, (laughs) suv that says razor fist it's like a oh he is such a high profile like i'm not afraid to swag it like b-level henchman that he has his code name like spray painted on the side of his car i thought that was really funny i loved the bus fight just because of the shades of mm-hmm. of police of jackie chan's police story which is i think one of the greatest action movies ever made they destroy an entire village in the opening five minutes of the movie um it, it that was that was really fun i loved going to zhai uh underground fight club and mm-hmm. just getting this taste of like what what are these various like powered up but not powerful enough to really be out there super villaining and not smart enough to be like super villaining? What are they doing for like spare money? Oh, they're fighting in underground fight clubs that are streamed across the internet in the dark where people can, we can, uh, can, uh, can bet on it. I was like, so you know, one of the things that got people talking the most was the appearance of the abomination in the trailer. We we get a, a, a great scene with uh, the abomination fighting Wong in what is legitimately a fixed fight. Mm-hmm. Um, although Wong, I, I I I guess you'd say Wong, uh, sincerely prevails. That said how the fuck does Abomination get out of the cryo cell? This is like one of the classic, like this is one of those classic comic book moves where all of a sudden someone who you thought was somewhere is not there. And then you know that there's going to be the backstory someday of how they got out of there. All I can think is Thunderbolt Ross is fucking up again. Yeah. Every time. Every time. How is this? How is he out?
3: (laughs) Why is well, he out?
2: <laughs> I thought that like the stinger at the end where it was like Wong went and got Shang and, and Katie yeah. and was like putting together his little team. He They kind of making him like a sorcerer Nick Fury. So I was like, whatever yeah. happened, I'm sure it seemed like he was, cause he was telling Abomination like, you know, you should have pulled that punch. So it kind of seemed like he was training him maybe. So I'm like, maybe Wong helped him get out. But definitely Thunderbolt <laughs> Ross is useless. I used to think that they were actually going to have him turn into Red Hulk, maybe like run as kind of version of an MCU version of Thunderbolts. Yes. But I don't think it's going to happen. Cause he's just useless. Like what, what's he I know that doing? Obviously Thunderbolts to
1: Thunderbolts. It's, it's an easy, it's an easy leap to make, it makes but he's, sense. Too inco- he's too incompetent. Like I think it's <laughs> going to be, I, I think it's going to be uh, the Contessa Fontaine. Like yeah. she will be the one who creates the Dark Avengers slash Thunderbolts team. Because at this point, Ross is too much of a fucking idiot. He, mm-hmm. Nothing he has ever done has worked, including putting the ab- abomination in a cryo cell in Alaska. <laughs> this guy is running around and he's legitimately 15 feet tall. Like, how can you miss him that he's yeah. not there?
2: Giant fin on his uh, and, head, looks like Savage Dragon. Come on.
1: Like, come on. Come um, on. Uh, other things that I really enjoyed about Shang-Chi are just like the scenes with with the friends mm-hmm. uh, sitting around and talking about their life and their experience. I thought that was actually really necessary is like connecting it to the Asian-American slash Asian diaspora in the West experience. Um, and those scenes just really popped for me and were really fun. I, I'm also like, man. Sean must' be getting great tips because I don't know how he is surviving in San Francisco, one of the most expensive cities in the country, <laughs> the United States of America, on valet tips. Uh, maybe he still has like access to uh dad's money or something, but like shouts to him for just really grinding um, <laughs> I, let's talk about the um uh, let's talk about the end kind of like big fight. I think one of the the criticisms of Marvel that seems to stick is like third act problems quote unquote mm-hmm. um again i think a lot, how people will feel about this is did you come in expecting super cop expecting the raid expecting a crouching tiger ex- expecting this like martial arts extravaganza um and then in the third act you get this like big monster fight i enjoyed it and i thought it was important for for this reason one I love the Mandarin's arc. I love that he, yes, was an organized crime figure who for centuries has been uh, running a a, a syndicate, although for a time he left it uh, because he was in love with his wife. Um, But I thought that it was, with that beautifully sweeping romantic setup in the intro, it beautifully laid the groundwork for his just like uh complete inability to get past the grief of losing his wife and that being the perfect hook to mm-hmm. lure him into this completely misbegotten mission to free this ancient demon who he thinks is the, uh, this you know to destroy this gateway behind which he thinks his wife is trapped but really it's this uh, it, this demon that is luring him forward i thought that that was I love that they made the character not just this like uh, mustache twirling villain, and that mm-hmm. it was it was a real heartfelt motivation that that kept him as like a three dimensional character that even in this even as he's doing terrible shit and attacking a beautiful magical village uh he's doing it because uh his one love he needs to free her from like from this place and he's just mistaken. Um, But I can understand people being like all of a sudden, like we're fighting a a monster dragon. How did you feel about it?
2: Yeah, I I think that you're right. I'm like, I feel like that's definitely the most emotionally invested I have been in a monster fight because they did a really good job of setting up and giving him first. I thought his whole arc was so good. Like it was the thing that I thought was most interesting about the film. And I thought, I also found that in that third act even with the giant monsters and dragons and everything I felt like there was really interesting space for him and Shang to have this like reflective arc where Shang's like well I'm just going to become what he wanted me to become I'm going to become an assassin and yeah. I'm going to kill him but what when we realizes is like well that he actually has to save his son in the end because he realizes that this thing that he thought was his wife was was not you know and and so in that way I felt like it was very it, it sold it to me a lot more than it just being random. Also, it didn't do the... They didn't have anything falling out of the sky, which is usually Marvel's yep. biggest problem. So I was like, yeah. at least they're moving a little bit. I, I kind of... The thing that I thought was cool about it that hadn't been done before, a lot of things in this movie haven't been done before, but the one thing I will say is, even though I definitely am more of a, like, raid kind of... I would have loved... I would still love to see that superhero movie, the gritty Timothee Hanto, like... Yeah. Brutal, but I did. I liked. I liked that they went full fantasy with it. I thought that that was a really interesting, different route for the MCU because all these movies are always so grounded in this idea of the. You know, Tony Stark's a real life weapons dealer, and he makes the from that beginning of of them being these kind of characters people didn't really know and needing to ground the MCU in this more ultimate style world. I was not averse to the fantasy of it all. I thought that it fit in with the world.
1: I I felt it made sense too, because listen, in the comics, Shang is uh, arguably the best hand-to-hand fighter, like Mm -hmm. in the canon, right here. He that's, it's unclear whether that would be the case in the MCU version. So introducing this fantasy element, putting him in possession of the, of the rings, I thought was a necessary thing to uh, to differentiate him from some of the kind of more ground-level heroes. Like, the, I think that the worst, not the worst, but, like, <laughs> the most kind of, like, boring outcome would have been he's just a guy in the realm of Hawkeye, you know, mm-hmm, like, he, totally. where... Which is not to say, like, a joke, but... <laughs> Hand-to-hand fighter, no powers. Lucky mm-hmm. to be there. Where you know his shtick is all the time. Like, man, I'm hanging out with a you know like a, a super powerful sorcerer, a human spider, and mm-hmm. you know a gamma-powered like a uh, scientist. And I'm just a guy who like is extremely well trained at fighting. Like I'm glad yeah. that that is not the case, and that he has something. Any theories going forward for for yeah
2: you know, I mean- how this
1: will connect? Going I, uh, to the wider universe.
2: I was really happy that they. I think that they are setting up Wong as some kind of. I mean, we I already saw an end I love game that that that, that, for him. Yeah, I I love him so much. I hope because the MCU does kind of a little bit later than we would hope, but years later, it kind of does what everyone's always saying. And when that movie came out, everyone's like, "Well, Wong should obviously be the Sorcerer Supreme." And I do think we're going towards a version of the MCU where we might get to see something along those lines. Um, I'm really interested about them making the 10 rings, this kind of magical artifact. I I, agree. I think, I think something that's cool is they kind of did still let Shang be a master of Kung Fu. Like he is an incredible martial artist, but also he's in a world where, you know, there's like three Captain Americas and there's a multiverse, So he needs these magical things. I thought that was cool. I think that that could definitely be a space of, um, you know, the, something along the lines of Atlantis. I'm really stoked for Atlantis. That seems like a space that no one would know about. So it would make sense why nobody recognized what the rings were. So I'd really like to see that. It definitely seems like they're setting up some kind of new Avengers team, though I would also really love to see like an Agents of Atlas and kind of bringing oh, in something fantastic. like that. So Wong and bringing in that team. And I also really loved, like, this isn't a theory, but I did really love the ending where it was like, we, we need to like, prepare to be an Avenger, but then they just went and did karaoke. That was just very relatable (laughs) to me. I mean, that was,
1: that felt the most like Asian experience to me as a Filipino American who, whose entire family is obsessed with karaoke. That felt very, uh, that hit me in my heart. (laughs) In order to understand the origins of the master of Kung Fu, In the comics and its long journey from uh, it's uh, Shang-Chi's first appearance in those pages to uh, the character we see on the screen, uh, we open up the Omnibus. (laughs) Shang-Chi's character in the comics is, I think, like a lot of the Asian diaspora in the West and in. America in particular, motivated by a search for his identity. The heroic son of an organized crime boss caught between Western and Chinese culture, but feeling at home in neither, a master fighter who craves only, quote, quiet pursuits, the search for harmony, universal peace, solitary tranquility. That search, that attempt to bridge cultures, bridge worlds, is mirrored in the hyphenated existence of the Asian Americans who are fans of Shang-Chi and comics in general. Shang-Chi made his debut in Special Marvel Edition number 15, written by Steve Englehart with art by Jim Starlin and Al Milgram, published in December 1973. The issue lays out Shang's origin story. At age 19, Shang is sent by his father on a mission to London to assassinate a Dr. Petrie. Shang has been educated at the finest schools, and he has spent his entire life training to physically confront evildoers, enemies, and bad guys. And that's what he thinks he's doing. The doctor, Shang has been told, is, quote, the most evil man alive. Though cadaverously old and bedridden, Petrie, quote, must not be allowed to die of natural causes, says Shang's father. Red flag! Shang travels to London, steals into Dr. Petrie's uh, Mayfair mansion, and though just uh, very, very briefly troubled at how fucking old and helpless Dr. Petrie appears, Shang dutifully uh, delivers a death chop to Dr. Petrie's neck and sends him off to the cold embrace of death. Later, Dr. Petrie's friend and confidant, Sir Dennis Nayland Smith, later to be an ally of Shang's, tells him the truth about his father, far from being a hero He is the immortal organized crime boss, Fu Manchu. The 1960s, uh, late 1960s in particular, and the early 1970s were a time of immense upheaval. The baby boom generation uh, came into its economic and cultural power and desiring, as all generations do, to differentiate themselves from their parents' generation began influencing music, television, cinema, and, of course, comic books. Meanwhile... Inspired by the civil rights movement, the various anti-Vietnam War movements, Asian-American activists sought to redefine their place within American society. The term Asian-American, a rejection of the crude and othering Oriental, was coined in May 1968 when Yuji Ichioka and Emma G. founded the Asian-American Political Alliance. Also around this time in 1966, Bruce Lee kicked off the U.S. kung fu craze that would eventually lead to the creation of Shang-Chi when Lee debuted as Kato, the high-flying sidekick of the masked vigilante, the Green Hornet, played by Van Williams in the television series of the same name. The series, along with I Spy, starring Robert Culp and unfortunately Bill Cosby as secret agents posing as traveling tennis pros were the first to present non-white sidekicks as, in certain respects, kind of equal, we can call it equalish to their white protagonists. I Spy, with its easy repartee and air of cool, forged the template for the buddy action genre and movies like Silver Streak, 48 Hours, Lethal Weapon, Rush Hour, many more, and the TV show Miami Vice. That template endures to this day. I Spy and the Green Hornet took a different approach in presenting its sidekick. Uh, In I Spy, Scotty is Kelly's partner. Cato is the Green Hornet's employee, his driver and bodyguard. But this is not a Lone Ranger and Tonto kind of relationship and with a sidekick is an overtly second class citizen. Lee's swagger, his lack of subservience as Cato was in and of itself subversive. Episodes of the Green Hornet were built around action set pieces for which Cato was just naturally going to be the focal point. I mean, it's Bruce Lee. Do you know who Van Williams is? No, you know who Bruce Lee is, though. Cato was the star of the show in all but name. Quote, as a kid, everyone wanted to be Cato when we played Batman, reads a typical comment about a Green Hornet fight scene on YouTube. Before Bruce Lee, positive representation of Asian people in American popular culture was not really a thing. Uh, The propaganda requirements of three consecutive wars against Asian nations, Japan in World War II, the Korean War in Vietnam, were, of course, a major factor here. Certain elements of Asian culture were seen as having merit and were thus appropriated. Think Jack Kerouac's The Dharma Bums and the Beat Generation's broad adoption of Zen Buddhism in general. But Asian characters, with notable exceptions, were by and large depicted as fiendish, weak, generally weird-looking, and often immoral. Only a few years earlier, director Blake Edwards cast Mickey Rooney, not an Asian man, As a Japanese man in 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's, Rooney wore eye makeup and prosthetic buck teeth for the role, which is now understood to be a landmark in racial caricaturing. It was understood uh, by Asians at the time to be that, but nobody really thought to ask them, I guess. The film was nominated for five Academy Awards and won two. Uh, with the success and the interest in martial arts came, of course, the white martial artists. 1971's Billy Jack, the story of a part Native American ex-Green Beret Hapkido expert, played by the aggressively not Native American Tom Laughlin, was a surprise indie hit, marketed as, quote, the most popular motion picture of our time. In 1972, the pilot for Kung Fu, starring David Carradine, not an Asian man, as the Chinese-American Shaolin Monk Kane was shown as the ABC movie of the week and an outpouring of viewer mail wanting to know, man, what the hell did we just see and how could we possibly see more of that, led the network to eventually put the show to series. Then, of course, came Enter the Dragon, the film premiered in August 1973, one month to the day before the death of its irrepressible star, Bruce Lee. It is still the most profitable martial arts movie ever made. Special Marvel Edition number 15, The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, was published five months later in December 1973. The title would run until 1983, encompassing over 100 issues, plus annual editions, and the black-and-white comic meets lifestyle magazine, The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. Um, I dug into the OG Master of Kung Fu run after reading about it on a blog that I can't remember, but I think was written by the comics critic uh, and creator Sean Witzke about the wonderful art of Paul Gulacy, who took over the title after Starlin and defined the title's pulpy aesthetic. As an Asian American, when it comes to representation, I had kind of internalized that for every cool... Uh, example of representation, every kind of step forward, there's going to be various shuffles backwards. You take the good, understanding that contained within will be some form of bad. In a sense, this is the story of Asian stereotypes in general, the myth that Asians were the model minority— First appeared in the 60s, portrayed Asians as hardworking, solid citizens, eager to assimilate, and indeed successful at doing so. Um, this is uh, not in and of itself a negative thing, and uh, certainly through a certain lens can seen, be seen as a positive portrayal. But of course, this stereotype was mainly useful. Uh, by the, uh, the existing white power structure as a critique of black and brown people's perceived failures to themselves assimilate, not as a lifting up as, of Asian Americans. Bruce Lee, uh, similarly, while a source of, of pride and a widely respected action star across cultures, uh, is also because of the dearth of representation of Asians in, in Western culture, a template for countless schoolyard taunts. And this is the case with The Master of Kung Fu. It's a Marvel comic with an Asian lead with great art, in particular, again, the pulp-inflected work of Paul Gulacy and the very macho uh, work of Mike Zeck, who would later go on to, to uh, create some iconic images, uh, mostly in the Punisher space. Uh, I'm glad that it exists, Um, But it is ultimately uh, the brainchild of well-intentioned white guys looking, as any creator should and would, to cash in on a trend without thinking too much beyond the surface-level aesthetic of cool of the wave that they were surfing on at the time. It takes the admiral stance, uh, Master of Kung Fu does, that uh, racism is bad. Uh, Various street toughs and henchmen are always calling Shang various slurs and he without fail puts them to sleep as satisfyingly as Thanksgiving dinner. But it goes about making that point in various problematic ways. Blackjack Tar, a good guy, is constantly calling Shang a Chinaman. Early issues are laden with nonsense renderings of Hanzi Chinese script, which are used just kind of like artistically fill out the page space during fight scenes. Uh, it depicts Asian women almost without fail as, as sex objects. It uses yellow ink, pale yellow ink, to color its Asian villains, a creative decision which readers even at the time objected to in the Missives to the Master letters page uh, and which uh, the creators at the time explained away as, you know, the limitations of comic printing technology, an excuse that really doesn't carry much weight, and it deployed its, as its main villain the aforementioned Fu Manchu, a creation of the British novelist Sax Romer, and in Romer's novels, as in Master of Kung Fu, the comic book, little more than a racist caricature. In 2019, Shang-Chi's co-creator Jim Starlin, who gave us Thanos, among other great characters, expressed regret for the inclusion of Fu Manchu in the comic. When asked about the then-upcoming film, Starlin said, quote, I never read a Fu Manchu book before we did Shang-Chi. I think it was Stan Lee or Roy Thomas. They bought the rights to it from the Roman family. Only after I got done with the first issue did Larry Hama, uh, a legendary Asian-American comic creator, perhaps uh, most well-known for his iconic run on G.I. Joe, said, have you ever read one of these books? And he gave me the one the next day, and I was going, ah, geez, it's kind of embarrassing. Starlin uh, would leave Master of Kung Fu after the third issue. The protagonist of Romer's books, which were first published in 1913 and continued into the 70s years after Romer's death, were Dr. Petrie and Dennis Nayland Smith, who fought to defend the British Empire from Fu Manchu's, quote, yellow peril. The uh, real world conspiracy theory that Asian, specifically Chinese, influence, if unchecked, would fatally weaken Western society. Ironically, because the Romero estate retained the trademark for the IP, the character's presence in Master of Kung Fu meant Marvel was unable to reprint the title until 2015. And, you know, maybe this is for the best. The release of Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings marks... The culmination of the efforts of various creators over the decades since Shang's comics debut to rehabilitate the character, most recently writer Gene Lewin Yang and artist DK Ruan and Philip Tan's 2025 issue limited series, and the ongoing solo title with Yang and Ruan. Quote, this past year, we've seen a lot of ugliness directed at Asian Americans. Yang told sci-fi.com in 2020. Quote, Asian Americans are often treated as perpetual foreigners, as outsiders, as two-dimensional. We want our story to present Shang-Chi as a three-dimensional hero with human wants, human fears, and human needs. We want him to be relatable to any reader from any background to counteract that ugliness. And I think that they've achieved that. There is something incredibly satisfying as we see... uh, Uh, various problematic characters be rehabilitated and deal with the fallout from uh, problematic creators who created great stuff like J.K. Rowling. Um, There is something so satisfying about either rehabilitating a character or seizing a character back from a problematic creator uh, and making it more equitable, more representative, and just better. With Shang-Chi now in possession of the Ten Rings, it's worth taking a quick look at these strange and powerful objects. The rings in the comics uh, are actual finger rings, worn on each finger and each thumb, wielded by the supervillain, the Mandarin, a bad guy from Iron Man's rogues gallery. The origins of the rings were first explained in Tales of Spence number 62, a year after the Mandarin made his debut in Tales number 50, which I believe is, I want to say, 1964. The Mandarin has undergone a welcome retcon for all the reasons that uh, that Shang-Chi has gone under various retcons over the years. Uh, but the basic origin of his rings remain the same. The rings are alien in origin, at least in the comics, uh, and were once the possessions of Axon Carr, a large green dinosaur from the planet Maklu-4. Axon landed on Earth and was kind of just like checking stuff out when some understandably very alarmed humans attacked him because they were like, holy shit, there's this huge uh, alien dinosaur with wings walking around. Um, He then retired to a cave uh, where he passed away. The rings were the power source for Axon's ship, which years later was discovered by the Mandarin. And after a long study, he was able to wield them for himself and unlock their power. Each ring has a discrete power, which the Mandarin can control. The rings are the ice ring, self-explanatory creates ice, the Mento intensifier, which allows the wearer to control the minds of individuals who are uh, in a fairly short range of radius, about 10 feet, the electroblast, again, self-explanatory, the flame blast, self-explanatory, the white light ring, which can emit various kinds of like light spectrum energy, so radiation, neutrinos, etc., On the other hand, there is the black light ring, which creates a field of complete darkness. The disintegration beam ring, self-explanatory. The vortex ring beam creates like a, a vortex of air, kind of like a tornado. The impact beam ring uh, creates concussive force similar to the effect of of, uh, Scott Summers' Cyclops' eye beams Uh, The matter rearranger, very interesting. The Mandarin has used this ring, which is kind of like the catch-all, for my money, the most powerful ring, uh, to do various things, including alter the appearance of his clothing, turn the air into poison gas, condense water from the air, and etc. It'll be interesting to see uh, what... The source of these rings are in the MCU uh, and what kind of power Shang, uh, through continued use, might be able to unlock while continuing to wield them. Up next, let's talk to Phil Yu.
0: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: And now to help us dive deeper into the world of Shang-Chi and what it means for Asian-American representation in film, in comics, in the MCU, X-Ray Vision welcomes the great Phil Yu to the podcast. You know him from his blog, Angry Asian Man, uh, from his Twitter account of the same name. His book, A Pop History of Asian America from 90s to Now, written with Philip Wang and Jeff Yang, is out in January. Pre-order it wherever you
4: get your books. Phil welcome to the podcast thank you for having me it's uh it's a pleasure to be here
1: so obviously like you know issues of uh, representation of front etc w- when it comes to uh, this movie and any other movie that stars you know asian-american leads or that has predominantly asian-american cast um the the Subject kind of like burst from the subtext to the text when a star seemingly uh, clapped back at Disney CEO Bob Chapek, who on an investor call basically represented this movie and its rollout and the various way. And, you know, the strategy for rolling it out in theaters, not with streaming simultaneously uh, as, quote unquote, an experiment Um, that hit a nerve, I think. what are your thoughts on this movie and and its importance?
4: Well, so as an Asian American and as an, a lifelong Asian American media consumer and pop culture yeah. fiend, it's like you know we don't get a lot of these. We uh, don't get no. any of these. No, we what don't get a lot of these. Of- <laughs> it's uh,
5: it's
4: it's it's once in a blue moon, and so and it's happening more frequently. But still, yeah. I can't help but when a movie like this comes along, feel something that um my friends and I kind of came up with a term for it's called the rep sweats, which is when you see Asians on screen. If you say, you just watch a TV and you see Asians on screen, it's going to be like an Asian story and you're like, Oh shit, please yeah. be good. Like, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like we've been burned before, Uh, you know, like, so please, I hope this is good. Now, something like Shang-Chi coming along as a Marvel movie, like, come on, the Marvel movie is like a, a gold standard of sort of, you hate ho- it. Yeah, it's we a Hollywood, you. yeah. Hollywood yes. pop culture blockbuster like this is sort of the biggest, the big time, the biggest time, right? So when when we get one of those, right? Uh you're like, "Okay. You're crossing all your fingers going to this movie, you're like, "Please be good. Like just or yeah. just not suck, right? Um yeah. So that's kind of the feeling and that that's a terrible place to watch anything from, honestly, and yeah. I and I want to get away from that, right? Um and I hope that, you know, as, as things roll along and more stuff like this comes out, that we're able to get away from, oh, please be good, to just being like, this is allowed to suck. This is allowed to be bad. Just like anything yeah. else out there, you know, the success of this movie will not make or break the community, right? So, um, but having said all that, like, it, it, may, it is a big deal to see an Asian-American superhero on screen doing all the stuff that everyone else gets to do, Um you know, like there is a certain level of hero worship that we do not get to have, not had, been able to do growing up in this. You know, like I, I watched everything else, like like everybody else. I watched all the superhero movies and I enjoyed them all. And it it's not like being Asian meant I couldn't enjoy them as much, but it means something to see yourself reflected in some some way on the screen like that. So for this movie to come out on this stage. It 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 is significant. It's it means a lot, it's particularly when you know historically, I think Asian Americans have have been seen as as not has have not been seen as, um, you know, a particular group that can can hold up can prop up a blockbuster like this, right? Yeah. So it it's it it's meaningful.
1: Yeah, I felt the same way. You know, it's it has been several years now, so I can say this publicly, and I will admit it, get it off my chest. I didn't love Crazy Rich Asians. Not for me. I didn't like that movie. (laughs) You know what I mean? Would I have said anything at the time? (laughs) Did I say No. Because my ultimate fear is like, we'll never Mm. see another one of these if it flops. We will never see another big budget movie in English, you know, uh, that has a predominantly Asian cast. It will never happen again if this movie flops. So I was like, just let it not flop. And, you know, flat out, like as a, comic fan, uh, who, you know, a lot of, in retrospect, a lot of the reason that I was drawn to comics is, you know, my, my pop cultural intake from television and movies, I, you know, was not diverse. And the way you, the way I was finding diversity was through comics because you know, everyone is there. Uh, people of color, alien, like every, there's the vast swath of, of existence could be represented because the only boundaries were imagination. And a lot of the reason that I I was drawn to that was, was that. So to see like, again, a predominantly Asian cast with an Asian American kind of lens with that amount of money and CG and action and everything and promotion and thrown into it. And it's part of the MCU, which is the premier generator of story in our time right now. That is a level of cultural acceptance. I mean, that is, it's legitimately the peak. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like it, it, is plugged into an existing property that will continue to roll on in a way that feels like even if they want a one-off this, they kind of can't. Like, they have to... It, it's plugged into the rest of it in a way that means I feel kind of confident that right. it will keep going. And that's not a feeling that I've, that I've felt before.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, uh, the... The fact that um, Shang Chi is the master of kung fu, like traditionally, is the master of kung fu. His superpower is that he's yeah. really good at kicking ass.
1: <laughs> really good, you at- know. That's
4: that's a. Uh, I mean, that's fine. I guess you know what I mean. Um, Listen, <laughs> he's you know uh, <laughs> the Asian hero does that. It's like okay, um, but the way they tell that story is significant. Like you know, we have to look at that right. Um, yeah. And I feel like the fact that they drew from sort of like Marvel's like D-list bench of characters to do this means that they actually had freedom to like do what, what they want with it, you know, and kind of mess with the lore and not be beholden to a lot of the things that maybe fans might have been like, oh, you need to have this, you need to have this. Like, no, you can just kind of like, right. and fa- the fact of the matter is like this character's origins are, are kind of fraught with a lot of like racist stuff. So yeah.
3: So you know, know, being able to yes. a 100%, being able yes. to
4: reinvent it on this level and kind of doing what you want with it, I, I think that actually provided a lot of freedom for them, and and um, I think it turned out great. Honestly,
1: yeah, I'm I yeah. super excited. I, I absolutely, I loved it. I could not have been more excited. Is it a top level Marvel? I would put it flat in the. I would say it's one of the best origin stories but just like emotionally like what it meant to see it for me it was like uh it's still like pretty freaking surreal that that is that there is more than one agent in the film you know what i mean and they they, uh and they hang out and talk to each other in ways that is recognizable uh to me in my experience it was it was uh pretty wild now to your point uh That he's the master of Kung Fu, at least in the comics canon, less so in this. But, like, uh, am I still waiting for the movie with a predominantly Asian cast and an Asian lead in which, like, martial arts are not part of it? Yes, of course. Like, listen, Better Luck Tomorrow came out, like, legitimately almost 20 years ago now. Uh, But, but I'll take it. This was, you know, I'll take it. That's how thirsty I am for it. I'll take it. Especially now where, where, you know, um, uh violence against Asians, racist uh, bias attacks against Asian uh, citizens, Asian Americans, Asian people in this country is so top of mind and still happening.
4: Yeah. No, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with an Asian martial arts hero sort of headlining the, this, you know, the first foray into, you know, t- to the MCU it's kind of it's how you tell that story and i and i honestly feel like it's you know you like martial it. arts has kind of been hanging over the heads of a lot of asian americans in cinema for a long time like look look uh, a recent poll asked americans to name name an asian american a prominent asian american right the people polled 43% said i don't know the answer was don't know okay the next <laughs> the next answer down the list was bruce lee who is no longer alive yeah, and the next one was Jackie Chan. Been dead. Yeah, for and next was years. Jackie Chan, who is not yeah. <laughs> American, right? And so right. that it kind of right there tells you kind of what is kind of the front face of Asian America in pop culture, which is either non-existent or you know martial arts, right? And and it's no coincidence that Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan is something that like you would have been taunted with on the playground. People would have called you that on the basketball court, right? Like as a, as an insult, you know. So. That's yeah. kind of the thing that's hanging around Asian American's head. Now, I think that what, what this movie really does is kind of reclaim that, right. Reclaim that space because the character, they, they're making him an Asian American hero. And there's something that people need to understand that. I don't think a lot of people are clear about like Asian and Asian American are like two different things. Right. Um, yeah. and so to kind of explore that diaspora a little bit is kind of interesting. It, it, even in the trappings of this big budget action flick you still have you get to see the nuances of like you know Shang-Chi and his friends and um her family and then all but then also like internationally there's this whole other you know um and they they yeah. they're bilingual and they switch in and out of that like that is that is significant to show like different shades and so the luxury of what you have is when you have a um a cast that is 90 something percent asian it's that the Asian person doesn't have to be just the comic relief or the Kung Fu hero or the wise teacher. They get to be all those things, right? So that I feel like there's much power in that, in this movie, you know.
1: Your blog and your Twitter account, Angry Asian Man, uh, are kind of like iconic, I think, for, uh, you know, the Asian diaspora in this country. Uh, I've been following it for a long time. What are you angry about right now? Are you angry about anything?
4: Uh... I mean, there's plenty at any given time. Uh, yeah. I,
1: there's At any yeah. given time, there's really um, too much.
4: You know, I, I think, like, I'll go with the one that everyone kind of knows about now, but I feel like has kind of fallen off the radar is, you know, the past year we've seen a, a surge of violence against Asian Americans. I think most Asian Americans will tell you, like, hate crimes and that kind of aggression is actually not that new. It's just that the media attention no, towards at it, you know, suddenly... Everyone is kind of interested in talking about that, you know, during this this COVID era, I guess. Um, but people will tell you like that's that's that feeling is ha- only been heightened. But really, it's something that you kind of grow up when you grow up in this country. You you grow up kind of yeah. you
1: internalize it's yeah it's it's like it's part of your daily, you know. Like I often think like a part of the reason that I. Uh, I'm a good observer of people is like you, I think growing up as an Asian American, I grew up in a white neighborhood. Like you kind of have to be head on a swivel of where is it going to come
4: there, from. there? There is always this little bit of sense of like may, being made to feel unwelcome in your own country. Right. Like, yeah. I, I, I like, why am I being made feel like I'm a guest here and, you know, and with someone's permission to be here. So, and then that, that kind of comes to you in very different levels of like, just kind of small microaggressions to like, you know, full on aggression and violence. Right. So, you know, like that, that it's just, but it's something you just kind of like learn to deal with. You internalize and then you, you develop a yeah. thick skin. I think this past year has shown that like, wait a minute, like collectively, like people can speak up and it's not to say people haven't spoken up before, but I feel like now when cameras and cameras are turned on us, it's like, this is our time to like, okay, finally someone is paying attention to this. You know, it's something that we've known all along. Right. That's that's always making me angry, you know.
1: Uh, Phil, thanks. We're gonna keep you around for our end game segment. Uh, welcome to our end game segment. This is literally the game that we play at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Today's game top fives. We will now rank. Our personal top five MCU weapons and gear. Obviously, uh, with Shang-Chi now in possession of the uh, magical, perhaps, perhaps alien. We're not sure where they come from. Ten Rings, formerly uh, his father's, but now his. Uh, Do they crack anyone's top five weapons and gear? We're going to list them now. Important conversation to have before we start this. Where do we land on armor? Let's, like, get the by-rules out right now. Does an Iron Man suit or the War Machine suit or Peter Parker's Stark Tech uh, Spider-Man suit count as a weapon or item of gear? Or is it too complicated and does it not? Let's just get that out of the way right now
2: say that in the comics, I would say no, but I would say in the MCU, they are so weaponized. It's kind of hard not to include them. Because like, Peter Parker's suit has a death mode, like an instant kill mode <laughs> in like Endgame. Right. But it is really complex. So I'm also cool if we just don't get into it, because it's like, really, it's more like five weapons in one, if you encounter a suit.
1: If we do do it, it would have to be one like it would be like the Mark IV or the Mark whatever. You know, the Hulkbuster, um, not Iron Man suits. Like, it would have to be one particular suit. Let's, uh, uh, Phil, do you have any uh, thoughts about it? Yeah.
4: I, I mean, I'm also asking the parameters that I, I would like to know are, are we ranking the most powerful, the most potent, the most effective, or the coolest?
1: Our, it, it's whatever framing you want to use, your personal top okay. five. Okay. I will go first to give you, to give you all time to think. Here are my top 5 MCU weapons and gear. Number 1. This is actually kind of in no particular order, but I'm going to say number 1, the Stark sunglasses that he uh, that he <laughs> gives to Peter Parker.
2: Ah, uh, yes, well then Why? drones given to a teenager. <laughs> yes. He gave a 16-year-old child,
1: legitimately legally a child still, uh, a, a sunglasses that have access to, like, trillions of dollars worth of of world-ending weaponry and, like, killer drone technology. Um, Utilitarian, and they look great. So that's going to be my number one. (laughs) Number two, uh, Captain America's shield. It's iconic. Uh, That's it. The the, the original Vibranium Shield, it's iconic. It's great. Uh, It looks great. Everybody knows what it is. Um, And I think it's also one of the... You know, it's our introduction into kind of like legacy characters, legacy identities. If you have that, you are Captain America. It doesn't matter who you actually are. Um, I will put uh, Mjolnir in there. Thor's a hammer. A Stormbreaker is cool. It looks great. It's really big. It was forged at the heart of a star, yada, yada, yada. But Mjolnir, you have to be worthy to pick it up. So it's got that like anti theft technology (laughs) built into it. And then, uh, man, the Black Panther's uh, Vibranium suit that uh, absorbs and releases kinetic energy. It looks fucking incredible. It is so awesome. The fact that it uses uh, attacks against it as an offensive weapon is rad. And, like, style points off the charts. And finally, I'm going to select... The ten, uh, maybe this is recency bias, but I'm going to select the ten rings from Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. They are incredibly powerful. Of course, we saw that um, they stack nicely with Shang's own uh, very elite fighting ability. And uh, here's the thing that I think vaulted immediately into the top five, despite the fact that we've only seen it for one movie: the immortality, baby. Like, how old is the Mandarin? Centuries old. Shang's that live forever, he's going to look like that? It's a pretty sweet deal. That's a sweet deal. None of the other ones give you that, of course as Guardians are already long-lived. But you get the long life, and I think that's the extra. Um, those are my five. Rosie... To you.
2: I i was gonna cheat and just list like five different infinity stones because I just love the infinity. No, uh, you can do it. I'm not I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna Molni is my first one because I just think that's like so cool. You can fly, it's cosmic, you can summon lightning. Um I so yeah, I will pick the Eye of agamotto because then I'm getting an infinity gem, but also Ooh. it's like cool cosmic time. I'm going to cheat and use something from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because that's technically in the MCU, which is Ghost Rider's chain because I just love Ghost Rider and that's, like, really, really, really badass. Um, we'll
1: see We'll see him in the MCU at some point.
2: Yeah, it's coming soon. I mean, they're doing a game, Midnight Suns. It's spelled differently, yeah. but I feel like Blade, Ghost Rider, it's coming. So, um, yeah, I'm, like... It's, you know what, I will use... Oh, no, that's not... I was going to go into comic stuff. I was like, I got distracted thinking yeah, of... Like, I mean, you can <laughs> do one comics thing. You've done you, Ghost Rider Chain, you've done it. Okay. Um, I will also... You know what, I'd throw in the Infinity Gauntlet, the classic Infinity Gauntlet, not the Stark Gauntlet. I'm not a fan of the Stark Gauntlet. I mean, honestly, I will...
1: who can... Yeah. You can't, how can you compete with the Infinity Gauntlet?
2: Come on. I, I would do original comic book colors because I'm a loser like that with the original <laughs> gems. And you know what else? I will put the 10 rings as my fifth one because I am real. I love I, I love the original comic book 10 rings, but I was really impressed yes, same. by how I liked the representation and the fact that it was Tony Leon wielding them the whole time is probably why I'm putting them in my list. But yeah, especially because they might be like weird alien Beacon calling people.
4: That's
1: that's really cool.
4: I love it. Uh, Phil, uh, mine kind of goes. My, yeah, my my choices all kind of go around the same same areas as yours. I think mine are chosen though purely based on the fact. Like I'm a bit of a collector, and so mine would just be mm-hmm. based on which things would look cool in display cases in my lair. <laughs> you know, right? So, um, but, you know, which is most of these things. I think like okay, Thor's hammer you know it's probably the top of the list honestly right you have to be worthy to carry it just the scene alone in endgame where cap picks it up it starts fighting i mean
2: Uh, yeah come on uh, is there that's probably uh, the scene i've watched the most it is from any it is possibly
4: the single greatest moment in the mcu right that single moment so just based on audience reaction alone it's up there cap shield it's iconic um, it's a it's it's like a bold shape and you it looks great on the wall I think. Um, uh, Infinity Gauntlet for sure. I mean that's like several several weapons in one you know and in convenient I mean, place. It's, it's almost yeah. unfair. Yeah. It's
1: almost unfair to pick it, yeah. but we'll yeah. allow it. No, but
4: that would also look cool just sending in a display case, right? Um,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm gonna okay. put
4: the Ten Rings as well. Um, almost purely because of its proximity to to uh, Tony Leung. I mean, just. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) They were on his arms. He is,
4: in my mind, one of our greatest actors of all time. And so uh, those are his weapons. Not to mention the way they reinterpreted them for the movie. They look like legit um, martial arts weapons that you would see in old school Kung Fu movies. So that is awesome, right? What a great way to reinterpret the Ten Rings. Okay, and then, Yeah. (laughs)
2: You could even have a little sign that says like one. Absolutely. That would be like legit, legit. Right.
4: Like that's the little card that comes when it sells at auction. Right. So, <laughs> um, and then my fifth one is a little wild card, but um, uh, in going with a little bit of the, my, my Asian theme um, in Ant-Man, there's a car chase scene where uh, they start throwing stuff out the window of the car and then blasting it to make it, Enlarge, right? As they use as weapons. So one of those things is a Hello Kitty Pez dispenser. And uh <laughs> and I thought that if was that's so awesome. Answer, you win. I just so awesome and I thought I was like, oh, that would be cool to have on the display case. So uh uh yeah. <laughs> okay. I love never- that.
1: I by the way, that is like a bit I never get tired of the of this shrinking. Oh, it's great. Right. Mm-hmm. Ever literally will never yeah. get tired of that bit. What do y'all think? Uh what are your top fives? Tweet or uh, Instagram or post your top fives to us uh, and tell us why we're wrong about our top fives. Uh, Phil, that was it. Yeah. This is fantastic. Thank you for joining us. It was, again, a pleasure and a long time coming, and I'm so glad to meet you through this.
4: Absolutely. Please keep in touch.
1: Well, that's it for us. Rosie, this has uh, been delightful. It's been so fun to talk to you. Uh, can't wait to do it again. What are you? Uh, where can people find you? and is there anything fun what are your comics tips my listen my strategy for comics is i wait a few months so i can pick up trades or or read three in a row Mm -hmm. what is what is hitting right now at at any comics company
2: trade rate waiting is the future i think that's what everyone does now um i you can find me i'm rosie marks uh with an x at on instagram i don't have Twitter anymore um I, I, my, You will find all my theories are usually at Nerdist, occasionally on IGM, places like that. I have a lot of Shang-Chi theories, so look out for those. <laughs> um, I've really been reading like a lot of manga. That's really, I, I mm. find weekly comics. I do have an, an incredible comic shop that I shout out, Pulp Fiction in Long Beach, um, and they're in brilliant LCS. But really the stuff that gets me most excited right now is, like uh, there's this incredible book called Witch Hat Atelier, which I love, which is like the most incredible amalgamation of like somebody who grew up reading american comics like artists like art adams but putting it into this unbelievably intricate manga style about a little girl who wants to learn magic that's incredible chainsaw man super super good um comic shop comics i really love anything by vita ayala danny law um the new mutants run is really really good uh hellions is like absolutely hilarious it is yeah. so funny. I live to see that Mr. Sinister in every version. Like
1: He's, I, he's, just, he's so, just a whack job. I love him, yeah. So
2: he's just absolutely bonkers, and it's the most fun to read. Uh, also, I've been loving everything that John Ridley's doing, Next Batman, stuff like that at DC. Like We are in a really interesting period of Green. really great, you know, you mentioned Immortal Hulk, like there are all these transgressive weird comics being made in this big two space. And because of the way that the distribution market is changing, I think we're just going to see more of that because there's all the, like DC's YA line, if you, even if you think you'd never read a YA comic, those comics are just absolutely delightful. Like they channel into like the thing that made us love comics, which is just adventures with beautiful art and cool characters. The Raven and Beast Boy stuff is so great there's a really, really lovely, super deep Jessica Cruz one that just came out. This about Jessica before she became the Green Lantern and her parents. Uh, she's a dreamer and, and that's super interesting. So like, I, I really like this. And those just go straight to trade. So really good if you don't have to wait uh, monthly. So yeah, just a ton uh, of ton of really cool stuff.
1: Thank you, to Jessica. Read. Thank you. And we'll see you all again real soon. Bye. <laughs> X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself, Jason Concepcion, and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by David Grinbaum. And the folks at Chapter 4, thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music.
5: Hey, Mike. This is Hizda from Marine. Yeah, I want to talk about the Underground Flight Club today. Uh yeah, uh, Wong uh, fought the abomination, and I gotta say, Mike, I would have known it was fixed right off the bat. Mike, the abomination uh, fought the Hulk to a standstill. Uh, yes, the Hulk eventually uh you know, got angry enough to beat him, but the, you're talking about a hundred class strength, Mike. He destroyed most of Harlem. Uh, I won't get into how he possibly could escape from prison, but there's no way. If I'm sitting there in that audience and I see Wong beat the abomination, I don't care if it's one punch or whatever, Then the abomination's own punch through a a portal and punched himself in the face. If Wong beats the abomination, forget it, it's a wrap. I want my money back, Mike, and this is an absolute scandal because when are they going to start, uh, you know, when is the government and various uh, governments and governing bodies going to look into somehow putting some rules on this, Mike? You just can't let stuff like this happen. It was obviously the fix was in. I hope nobody lost too much money, and, uh, you know, I, w- I would love to know what you think. i would take my answer off
3: the air. Thank you.